are standing by with those crucial exit poll figures. Here they are. Our exit poll is suggesting that there will be a Conservative majority of 86. And that will be the biggest Conservative majority since Margaret Thatcher's third victory back in 1987. And if these numbers are broadly correct, Boris Johnson may just have redrawn the map. If this poll is anywhere near right, you've produced your worst results since 1935. Yeah, if it is anywhere near right, that's right. So the box is coming into Sunderland at a pace. Look at that. Now, what our map does show you very clearly is the Red Wall. I'll walk you along the Red Wall. This is through northwest England into Yorkshire. How much will this wall crumble tonight? Well, in 1989, Russia's Berlin Wall came down. In 2019, Labour's Red Wall came down. You know, this has been a hard-fought general election campaign at a cold time of the year as well. We've all been out on the road. We've had amazing candidates day in, day out, taking that message out across the country that we need to break the gridlock. I was determined in this election we would use our influence to stop a second referendum. Yeah, can That's I just right. go to Newcastle and have a look at uh, what's going on there? Newcastle upon Tyne Central. I am the first MP to be declared. So for the moment, the entire British Parliament is Labour. I'd like to make the declaration of the result of poll for the Blythe Valley constituency. Ian Levy, the Conservative Party candidate, 17,000. <laughs> This is one of the big moments of the night. There's no question about it at all. I would like to thank Boris. Because... I'm going to be on that train on Monday. I'm going to London. We're going to get Brexit done. You know, this is a symbolic moment in this night. The exit poll forecasts that the Conservatives would narrowly win Blythe Valley. This could build a new Conservative majority across Britain for another generation. Uh... Well, there you have it. I'm sorry, we should have issued a, a trigger warning for UK leftists revisiting that material from the 2019 election. Welcome to the popular show in the morning with me, James A. Smith, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Phil Burton Cartledge. He's the author of Falling Down, the Conservative Party and the Decline of Tory Britain, published by Verso Books, we're going to be trying to make sense of the resignation of the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Phil, thanks for joining us on The Popular Show. Morning, James. How are you? All good, cheers. Though, you know, the trigger warning was definitely necessary because I almost put my foot through the television when that was uh, announced at the time. I'm sure we all have our horror stories from um, that particular moment. Yeah, it, it, when the exit poll came out, I was actually changing trains uh, on my way back to Manchester. So there was just this sort of moment where I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't around anyone I, I knew. And I, I just checked my phone and saw it and just sort of stood there alone as it all kind of washed over me. The, the collapse and the crushing of Britain's left populist experiment under Jeremy Corbyn and, and a historic victory by Boris Johnson, where he managed to get support for the Conservative Party in parts of Britain that had never supported it before. That was two and a half years ago. We flash forward and the same guy, the guy who that night everything was being attributed to, uh, has had to resign, as indeed 
his two predecessors did. The, 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 this is the third consecutive prime minister, the third consecutive conservative prime minister, who, despite increasing the support that the party had in the country, has had to resign midway through. When your book came out, and 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 also when you were you were talking about it um, coming out, uh, what was it? It's, it's been, it came out twenty twenty one. Came out last yes, year. September. This um this part of the thesis that it's the decline of Tory Britain that you were writing about seemed rather eccentric. Uh, <laughs> do you feel vindicated this week? Uh, yes, and um, I remember someone uh, writing a review in a magazine at the time saying that this was just full of wishful thinking. But you no, know, I don't want to. This you can't think about it in terms of kind of the iron laws of history grinding out or grinding down the Conservative Party. Rather, it's a tendency, and the fact that the uh, the Tory Party's base is something that's in long-term decline. It means that crises in the Conservative Party are inevitable and just when I knew that when Boris Johnson was elected that even though it looked like that this was a you know a position of strength we had just had Nicholas Soames talking about a new conservative coalition that would last a generation the grandson even of was, Churchill incidentally indeed yes uh, even then I wasn't I wasn't convinced I thought that you know the conservatives were still in big trouble all that Boris Johnson had managed to do was maximize out that potential Tory coalition and it was all downhill from there. So for, for viewers, uh, this is going out on, on Doug Lane's Sublation Media channel, which is mainly uh, watched by American leftists. Uh, and uh, so we say hi to you guys, uh, like and subscribe, and also click on the, the link below to get over to our own YouTube channel where we're posting a lot of stuff. We just started that. So we'd love to have you uh, as a subscriber over there too. Um, we want to kind of explain what's going on in Britain um, for, for that kind of wider audience. And uh, really, this isn't just a local news story. The Conservative Party is the most successful electoral party in the world. And what happens to it uh, does kind of have lessons for the right and the shape of the right internationally and also lessons for how the the, the inter, international left responds, um, really. So uh, I think it's, it's kind of important that we, we get to grips with this. Can, can you kind of get a little deeper into that kind of claim that the right appears to be so powerful right now, but, but actually there is a kind of, uh, well, as you just said, it's downhill from here. Maybe you could kind of get into that thesis a little bit more for us. Yeah, sure. It's 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 quite basic, really. The the fact that um, conservative party and right wing parties generally tend to be more dependent on older voters. Now, William Hague, former conservative party leader, was asked about this a number of years ago. It was about two or three years ago, and he said, uh, "You know, this is something that the conservative party and the right don't have to worry about because there'll always be plenty of old people." My argument is that even though they are dependent on old people, and of course old people have a tendency to sadly pass away, that this coalition that they've built around old people, and particularly propertied old people at the, at the centre, is not replacing itself. So you just have to look in, in Britain, you also look in the United States as well, how the drivers of conservatism, i.e. property ownership, home ownership, is breaking down that, that uh, fewer and fewer people of working age 
are able to get on the housing ladder. And if they're unable to get on the housing ladder, that means they are locked out of property ownership and therefore they're locked out of a tendency to vote Conservative, particularly in later life. So what we're seeing now is the, the fruits, if you like, of the Thatcherite revolution in housing in the 1980s. For those who don't necessarily know what Margaret Thatcher did, uh, we had uh, social housing, which was also known as council housing in the UK, which uh, was sold off to tenants quite cheaply during the 1980s, creating a new class of homeowners that were previously would never have been able to get onto the housing ladder. Furthermore, in, a, in the early to mid-1980s as well, cheap credit and cheap mortgages became readily available as well. So it was quite easy for you know, people who would be ordinarily low paid to get on the housing ladder. And unlike the foreclosure crisis that we had in the United States in the mid to late noughties, that these people were able to keep up their mortgage payments until the late 1980s anyway. And this was a uh, this was a conscious strategy on the part of the conservatives they wanted to break up the solidarities or uh, communities of solidarity i.e labor movements working class communities that worked in a relatively cohesive way and returned uh, labor party politicians at elect election time and try to individuate people and get them to think more along the lines of mini capitalists as people who are interested in maximizing their property portfolio or their share portfolio, because also in the 1980s, this was a particular period in which the Thatcher government pursued what you might call popular privatisations, though they were never as popular as, um, as history uh, would have you believe. But nevertheless, millions of people took up shares in British Telecom, in British Gas, in the uh, privatised utilities companies, water and electricity, and so on. It helped create a class or a strata of small petty shareholders and the idea was to expand the electorate for the Conservative Party. Whisk forward until to the 2010s, you start to see that whilst these people as they've aged they've held on to their property thanks to deliberate policies by subsequent governments to Thatcher there has not been the building of enough social housing or enough private housing uh, for that matter which meant that the property values, asset prices have inflated, making many pensioners, particularly those in the southeast of England, uh, on paper millionaires. And this is the key driver, and understanding this is the key driver for Conservative Party uh, support. And it's also understanding this is the is key to understanding how that vote is beginning to decompose. So having instigated this this neoliberal transition this atomization this uh turning of uh, a population into uh, uh well everybody being a kind of small business unto themselves uh the the party of the right in britain much like the the, the republican party in in the us has actually succeeded in recent times by changing the tape and rebranding as the most vociferous critic of precisely those tendencies. Tr Trump was so successful because he seemed to uh, be able to offer a kind of economic populist antidote to, uh, to, to precisely the processes that you're describing. And Boris Johnson was much the same. Nigel Farage uh, 
said, you know, when, when, when shown how economically damaging Brexit could be, said that some things are more important than money. Boris Johnson, very similarly, uh, when shown, uh, you know, the, 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 the way that businesses were complaining about Brexit, said, fuck business. The, the capitalist parties have managed to kind of rebrand as as uh, kind of pseudo anti-capitalists for the moment. How has that played out since Boris Johnson won that big majority in 2019? How, if, if that was part of the kind of rhetoric that allowed him to win then and to take so much of the, the left vote, uh, how, how has that played out in government? It's what you call political vaporware, basically, because Johnson has made a great deal about so-called levelling up. This is the idea that for many areas of the country outside of London, they've been left behind over the course of the last 40 years. You had uh, deindustrialization in the 1980s, which was accelerated by Thatcherism and, uh, and also accelerated under Tony Blair as well, lest we forget. Um, and so there's a sense that places where I live, Stoke-on-Trent, which is in the, the West Midlands, is a former industrial town that used to be home for of the potteries, also steelworks and the mines. And the idea that nothing has come in to replace those those industries. And so they've just been these towns, these cities have just been left to go to seed. And so Johnson's argument is, which is borrowed from Theresa May, his predecessor, this idea of spreading prosperity by using the agency of the state to invest. So this is kind of language that you might have expected from the Labour Party at some point in, in time, pre-Jeremy pre Corbyn. Um, however, none of this has materialised. He's made a great deal of um, sound and fury around investing in localities, but in practice, we're talking chicken feed. So, for example, here in Stoke-on-Trent, since 2010, since the Conservatives came to power, uh, over £120 million has been cut from the local government grant that goes to the local authority. The, the local authority would use that to provide services, would use it to fund um, uh, regeneration projects and, and all the rest of it. Um, under the uh, the levelling up fund, the, the monies that have come in are, are not even 10% um, of that. So we're not replacing like for like. And part of the problem with this is that Johnson is or was caught between the tensions within his his coalition because it's not just you know, pensioners who have an interest in rising asset prices, but also a lot of the institutional investors that support the Conservatives also have an interest in rising asset prices. You think about the, the you know, the... Uh, institutional landlords, the big property speculators, none of these people have an interest in levelling up because ultimately any kind of levelling up strategy would require a, a mass house building programme all across the UK. And of course, if you suddenly increase the supply um, and meet demand, then the prices asked start coming down, which of course is not in the interest of these institutional investors. And so this is why the kind of character that levelling up has taken tends to be tinkering um, around the edges. So if you were to come to Stoke-on-Trent today, for example, and were to compare it to 10 years ago, uh, you would find that the, the local park looks very nice after, after a period of decline. You'll find that some of the more historic buildings around the town have been spruced up and so look pleasant again and approach something of their, of their Victorian heyday. 
And also um, the local Conservative Council have spent millions on taking a Spitfire and putting it in a fish tank, effectively. So when you walk by, you can uh, look at look at a Spitfire on the way to the local library, whose who's, uh, opening hours have been cut. Um, so all these kinds of little things, they are kind of showy. People can see that there's been tangible change, but it's very superficial change. Behind it, they kind of the social infrastructure, people's living standards, the numbers of homeless people, for example, in this city have exploded and more visible than ever before. Now, these are the things that the Tories are kind of, they're levelling up has kind of helped fund some baubles, but have only really papered over the cracks of the kind of the really deep-seated problems that uh, that they're sitting on. A spitfire in a fish tank feels mm -hmm. somehow symbolic uh, of, of the... Well, to the you can see yourselves. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, a lot of people have been have been very disappointed actually with with, with Boris Johnson on, on those grounds. I think one of the best um, reactions to, to Boris's resignation was actually from the right, from um, Aris uh, Racinos in in Unheard. Uh, he, he wrote that no one in living memory can have squandered such a far-reaching and revolutionary mandate for reform through such petty and absurd personal failings in all the long litany of failures he now drags around behind him. This is the bitterest draft for his voters, for us to swallow, that there is nothing to show for any of it. And I've got to say, I, I do sympathise with that. Mm. Uh, watching back that, that, that footage from the 2019 election is, is painful. It was painful for uh, everyone on our side. And, and uh, I suspect, Phil, that, that you might feel the same as me, that really nothing has gone well <laughs> for us since then. Uh, and yet, well, you know, put it this way, if you, you, you have a kind of tough breakup with somebody and you hear that they're with someone else and they're, th they're thriving, they're, you know, out all the time, it's, it's a great relationship, it's painful. But on some level, you can feel like it was meant to be. If you have a terrible breakup and then they're with someone else and that relationship is also terrible, uh, you sort of think, well, what the hell was all that for? And and that's that's kind of how I feel about Boris Johnson and the country right now. You know, he beat us uh, and uh, he did so by promising to use the most successful party in the world uh, and to use the British state to actually deliver on some of our aims. That 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 was the level on which Jeremy Corbyn was was sort of right about having won the argument. However, um, much cope there was in that statement, and yet there's there's nothing to show for it. Two and a half mm. years of the most revolutionary mandates and far-reaching mandates, and and he's done nothing. I mean, your your predecessor. Um, in uh, in in writing a book on the decline of the Tory Party, Jeffrey Wheatcroft, who wrote another another book that's actually very interesting, uh, the the strange death of Tory England. He argued in in two thousand five when David Cameron uh, took over the the Tory Party, Cameron representing himself as the heir to Blair. It, Wheatcroft said that what what Britain really needs is a not the Tony Blair party. And despite the fact that Boris Johnson, like Trump, has been the sort of very model of unacceptable populism that mainstream centrists 
love to hate, actually it's possible to see him as not having departed from that blueprint at all. Uh, when we, we had Jake Berry um, MP on the show about a year ago, and, and he, he said that Boris isn't a populist at all. He wants to be Tony Blair. Is there a way in which actually this, this kind of massive failure of an administration is not totally reducible to Boris Johnson's obvious personal failings, but rather speaks to a kind of stuckness in British politics as such. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as I kind of just said, the Johnson was really a prisoner of the tensions within the Tory coalition. You know, the Tory modernisation project of levelling up is, is stymied by the fact that they're dependent on institutional and financial interests and do not have an interest in making sure that there's a ready housing supply, for example. Uh, but also, um, you've got to remember as well, when you look back to that 2019 manifesto of Boris Johnson's, it was literally an incredibly thin document. I think it was about 40, 50 pages, something like that. It was called Just Get Brexit Done, which is what it was all about. And when you actually look in the, the content of it, because sadly, I, I read that manifesto. I always read all the parties' manifestos, I'm afraid to say. Um, all so the, you can really the... make, make up your mind just to try. <laughs> yeah that's it just hope they can persuade me no um there was um there was nothing in there apart from there was mentions about leveling up there's a few promises that were kind of red meat for the tory faithful such as a determination to beat down on the traveler community for example um but there was very very little and the kind of counsel that Johnson received on Conservative Home, which is the main Tory grassroots website here in the UK, um, from, you know, key figures in the party was, OK, you've won this mandate, so let's not actually do anything with it. You know, to keep the red wall, i.e. those working class former Labour voters who are mostly pensionable age but spent most of their lives voting Labour but went Tory in 2019, their idea for keeping them on side was actually don't do anything you know because they they've got they're not going to go to the labor party labor party is too toxic as far as they're concerned too socially liberal too into lgbtq rights trans rights and and uh, black lives matter um you know they're too toxic we just have to coast for the next four or five years and we'll win another thumping majority and so the tories weren't really set up to do anything so you've got a kind of a mix of them not really promising anything uh at least when you look at the kind of into the fine print, you've got that combination of institutional interests that they want them to do anything. And also you've got to look at the Tory party in Parliament as well. You know, there is, there's probably more Thatcherites in the Parliamentary Conservative Party now than there were during Thatcher's day. And, and their first instinct is low tax, which means small state, which means a state that can't do anything. And also the so-called what they call the being the party of hard work, i.e. cutting Social Security even further. So so wages can be driven down even more. And their first instinct is that the state doesn't know what it's doing. Uh, the state invariably acts in interests that aren't their interests, i.e. business interests. And therefore, they are opposed to it doing anything at all. I mean, I was just reading some of the comments uh, that have come out on Conservative Home this morning, and um, people were declaring Rishi Sunak on there, who is a hard right Thatcherite, um, as 
and one of the leading contenders to be the next Conservative leader and therefore Prime Minister. He was being described as a socialist, even though I just think this is utterly crazy because he oversaw the furlough scheme during mm. the acute phase of the of the COVID pandemic. Yeah. So, you know, it's the contradictions within the Tory party itself have really kind of stymied uh, Boris Johnson. And to be honest, also, I know there is Boris Johnson's personality as well, and he is an incredibly lazy person. Um, I don't think he's that bothered, really. He's interested in the plaudits, and he thinks things should be done for him. Um, but for him, it's just a case of saying, you know, do this, do that. He doesn't kind of get a sense of having to struggle for, for anything, despite the fact of winning a a thumping majority in an election that again was on the on the back of a divided opposition and um a electoral system plus a newspaper establishment which sets the tone for broadcast news in this country that was all pro conservative pro boris johnson so yeah those that's one of the reasons why i think they failed and will also continue to fail under whoever is appointed the next conservative prime minister I think that uh, there are a few sort of angles from which this is very hard to celebrate, even though mm. obviously pe people on the on the left in Britain pretty much despise Boris Johnson. It, it, it's hard to celebrate because of what we're going to get into in a, in a moment, the prospects for a successor hardly being um, inspiring. Uh, it's hard to celebrate because really we've seen a, a, an amazing experiment in what happens when you give somebody who has a, a, an almost kind of utopian project. I, I think that the, the last decade has seen three utopias in, in Britain proposed, Brexit, Corbynism and Scottish independence. And, and the Tory version of Brexit is the, is the one that, that, uh, that so far um, came to the surface. And then you give a guy basically unlimited power uh, and an unlimited mandate to see it through and nothing happens. We essentially just have this kind of grim sameness for, for all that uh, 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 liberals and the left in Britain um, denounce Boris Johnson's response to COVID. Essentially, you know, you might criticize the, the local kind of rollout of it. It was the same as everywhere else. Look at, uh, look at Ukraine. We, we're the, you know, we match America in terms of the NATO line, the, the escalatory NATO line. But Boris Johnson is too similar, in my view, to a kind of standard um, a, a prime minister as opposed to uh, too different. That, that, that's the problem mm. with him. Um, the, the other kind of angle for, for me, and I, I went into this on a, on a video on our own YouTube channel, is that what we've, what we've seen with Boris Johnson is a kind of personal assassination, whether you think he deserves it or not, that actually has a lot of kinship with what was done to Jeremy Corbyn. That's the kind of irony of Boris Johnson's situation. He was, you know, the, the political establishment didn't want him. Uh, and in, in, in 2016, immediately after the referendum, they did everything they could to avoid having um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Uh, but by by 2019, uh, and 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 with the real kind of threat, and it, it was that, and, and uh, all of these resignation letters have attested to the fact that Corbynism was regarded as a massive threat on the right, not just a not a joke, as uh, you you would hear from most people in the Labour Party today. It was a real threat, and they got Boris Johnson in specifically to get rid of that threat, and the whole 
most of the whole political spectrum coalesced one way or another around him in order to make that happen, in order to get rid of Corbyn. Well, th they swallowed the, the spider to catch the fly. And then as... Uh, you know, as many many people attested, pretty much immediately they, they wanted rid of him. And uh, that, that has been going on from the start. So this kind of drip feed of stories about parties in Downing Street, uh, this, this just sudden kind of changing of how Boris Johnson gets spoken about in the media, it's all too familiar from how the kind of tone around Corbyn changed as soon as uh, as soon as he, he showed in 2017 that uh, he could actually be a credible threat to the establishment. So uh, it, it, it's it's depressing to see, yeah, somebody given this huge power and huge mandate and not be able to do anything with it. And it's depressing to see how somebody's reputation and standing can be obliterated pretty much overnight. And, and, and that's, that's the main thing I take away from it, really, myself. I don't know if you want to come back on that, but also maybe take us into what the kind of prospects for the next identity that the Conservative Party is likely to take uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, I think we do need to also remember what you might regard, or what some Conservatives might regard as Boris Johnson's achievements. Apart from getting Brexit done and therefore, you know, reinserting or reasserting the conservative dominance of of parliament uh, that's you know the first achievement but from the standpoint of capital as well the fact that johnson has clamped down hard on the right to protest and the right to dissent we've seen some of the most authoritarian legislation go through parliament i mean johnson doesn't strike you as an authoritarian character but look at some of the people who've surround, who he's surrounded himself with, particularly Priti Patel, the Home yeah. Secretary, who is by far the most extreme Home Secretary we've ever had in this country. You know, looking at a situation where you know leak of do government documents in a bill that's before Parliament at the moment could get journalists fourteen years in prison. You know, you can be imprisoned for having a protest that is too loud. You know, these are all things that have been overseen uh, by Boris Johnson. And in that sense, Boris Johnson is a continuation of previous prime ministers, because since Margaret Thatcher, there has been this ramping up of authoritarianism, you know, the authoritarianism of the state, the authoritarianism of the office of the prime minister, which also continued unabated under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown as well. So I think that's also an important point of continuity. And I don't think that we're going to see any difference from whoever Johnson's successor is in that regard. These kind of, this repressive legislation that we're seeing is going to continue. We might see some changes. So for example, um, one of the things that uh, was announced under Johnson was the privatization of Channel 4. So listeners and, re and uh, viewers don't know what Channel 4 is. It's one of the main public access television channels in the UK. It's also got a liberal left reputation and over the years has kind of um, established itself as a, as a trendsetter and you know, a purveyor of programmes that really push at the envelope of, of what is considered acceptable conversation. Uh, so it's it struck blows for LGBTQ rights and LGBTQ visibility for anti-racism and, and so on and, and so forth. And so the current plan is to is to privatise that. I think that is a plan that we'll probably see 
that will go the way of the dodo. But the rest of the things that are on in Boris Johnson's intray, so for example, he was about to announce big tax cuts uh, this this week if the coup hadn't uh, derailed him. Those would probably still go ahead. But the rest of Boris Johnson's agenda, because it is so thin, anyone can just simply take it over and, and brand it as they, they see fit. And when you start looking at what the Conservative Party candidates or the leading candidates are starting to say, to say in their pitches to their electorate, it's all kind of flimflammery around low taxes, believing in hard work, um, you know, restoring Britain to how it was. You know, it's stuff that we've heard before. Now, no one is saying what's quite interesting is that when Theresa May took over from David Cameron in 2016, her immediate pitch was, and which caught a lot of people who might have caught you a bit off guard as well, James, is when she started talking about social justice issues and the need to kind of tackle persistent inequalities in the UK. Interestingly, Boris Johnson never bothered taking over that language. He kind of sublimated some of it in his levelling up agenda, but he never really talked about inequality issues. And looking at the pictures of the people who are coming up now, none of them are talking about these issues either. In fact, many of them are using code words that suggest they want to continue the, the war on woke, the kind of thing that, that um, Trump specialised in. You know, Boris Johnson and his lieutenants in the press have been happy to, happily pursuing this war on woke. And they're going to continue doing the same as well because it's divisive, it helps divide up people. And they think it's one way of helping bring together that coalition that got them this huge majority in 2019, helping glue it uh, back together by you know, finding scapegoats, you know, formulating against the liberal elite, talking about immigrants. You know, these sorts of things they think uh, play really well to the country. And I can't see any successor to Boris Johnson abandoning them. Even though they yeah. don't particularly. So, so it feels like the, the, the future is either a candidate from the so-called liberal wing of the Conservative Party who will um, come in sort of wanting to return us to the austerity agenda of David Cameron uh, and will be coming in with an inheritance from Boris Johnson of a highly authoritarian tranche of policies for cracking down on any kind of resistance to that austerity agenda and also uh, a, a massive kind of increase in pro-war sentiment uh, i mean david cameron just couldn't wait to strap on the boots mm. and, and get to war but there there was a kind of problem of of consent and, and a kind of hangover from iraq i i think that what we've seen uh, this year over Ukraine is a decimation of the legitimacy of the anti-war movement and any kind of criticism of NATO. And you can thank Sir Keir Starmer for, for quite a lot of that. Uh, so, yeah, re really, it could be David Cameron, you know, with the gloves off if it's uh, if it's a, a, a Guardian approved um, so-called liberal Tory. Or we turn to the, the right of the Conservative Party, and there we do have some a, a kind of interesting way in which that fiscal responsibility has been dropped from the language a bit. But it, it, it's mainly taking the form of uh, wanting to copy Trump on tax cuts, as far as I can tell and yeah with with uh, a kind of mis to, to my mind a misreading of Brexit as a 
culture war issue mm. as opposed to um yeah, well what i described it before as a, as a as a as a utopian kind of desire to really transform um how sovereignty legitimacy uh, and economy works in the country so yeah wherever you turn in that party you're looking at a kind of well something that's even worse than boris johnson as far as i can tell uh that's likely to be more competent and have more consent across the media at least boris johnson was divisive you know people complain about mm -hmm. being divisive but you know you don't what you don't want every everyone agreeing in defense of the of the leader right um, so uh, yeah, fr from all these angles, it, th there is not much uh, not much to celebrate at, at, at all. Um, with uh, Boris Johnson handing the the baton to one of the other kind of demons in that party. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's difficult to see who's going to actually win at the moment because when you've looked at all the polls that have been done on Conservative Home, for example, Ben Wallace, the current uh, Defence Secretary, who's been very hawkish over Ukraine. He is um, someone who has consistently led the polls, but we're only talking by two percentage points. He's usually listed on being something like 16 percent. Then we have Penny Mordaunt, who is a, a junior minister in um, in Johnson's government who has military associations. She's some, on something like 14, 15 percent. Then you have Liz Truss, 13 percent. And then it just goes down and down like that just by one percent. So there's no real clear uh, front runner. And so we've also we've got to remember, we've got to think if they do go for someone like Liz Truss, for example, who is the current foreign secretary, she's quite, you know, very similar to Boris Johnson in her politics. She's very much a Marmite character, um, very, very definitely divisive as well. And it depends what kind of mood the Tory grassroots are in as well, because ultimately Tory grassroots always choose the candidate they think is going to win. Uh, but the, the problem that the Tory grassroots have got is because they've been effectively radicalised over the last, well, since since Brexit, since the referendum in 2016, and they've been radicalised in a right-wing populist direction. This has also been aided by an influx of members or former members from the UK Independence Party and, and then uh, supporters of the Brexit Party, which is what UKIP became effectively, is that do they think that having someone like Liz Truss, who is, you know, pretty, for want of a better phrase, is pretty demented, you know, is, you know, hard, hardliner on, on all issues, you know, believer in war on woke stuff and all, all the rest of it. Do they really think that someone like that can win an election? And I think that a large proportion of the membership do think like that, rather than going for someone who's a bit more centrist, like, for example, Rishi Sunak, who is... You know, relatively hard Thatcherite, but it seems to be socially liberal on a number of issues. If you like a Brexity David Cameron, um, mm. though I think that he has got some significant issues as well. I think he's very politically flat-footed, and bizarrely, I think even Keir Starmer will be able to run rings around Rishi Sunak, which says, really says something. Uh, but even then, you know, he's got that kind of that briefcase Toryism look. He he looks good in a suit. He has tall person energy, despite being very short. Um, he is someone who would play well in the media. He's someone that would melt centrist hearts. You know, can yeah. imagine 
Despite, uh, despite the fact that until recently he secretly had a green card. Um, yes. <laughs> totally she, you know, had his bags packed ready to go off to Silicon Valley if things didn't work out here. So, yeah, despite that absolute illegitimacy. And, you know, we talk about Boris Johnson's role in the COVID response. Eat out to help out was mm. soon next baby. This was a, a policy where, okay, there's a diversity of views on a lot of COVID containment measures in our audience, and we've taken quite a sceptical view uh, historically on this show. But uh, I will say that I don't think it was a good idea to give everybody vouchers for free meals if they went inside restaurants and mm. sat down and ate in them. I, I mean, I was all for opening up, but specifically incentivizing everybody to go inside restaurants and that was Richie Sunak's idea I mean he, he's he's got us not that we'll hear about this if he ends up being the sort of the anointed uh, uh, successor in the media but that guy is as responsible for um, as as much uh, as much chaos and as much um, complete idiocy over COVID as as anybody in the government is um, yeah a, a, a absolute disaster yeah uh, but also, Sunak has also been the architect of, he's been part and parcel of this whole Tories not offering anything or doing anything. You know, one of my arguments has been that because the furlough scheme, well, firstly, Corbynism opened up political imagination in this country, which Boris Johnson was able to capitalise on with his ideas around the levelling up agenda. But one of the things that Sunak has pursued is since COVID came, and he brought in the furlough scheme, which, you know, basically the state underwrote the, the wages bill in this country um, and kept people at home and you know, benefits were temporarily uprated. Homelessness was solved overnight virtually. Um, all of these sorts of things, which opened up the political horizon even more since um, since uh, Roundabout help out, uh, eat out to help out the health uh, scheme that he's been trying to kind of row back on that and row back on the state's ability to do things, to try and close down that political imagination again. And we've seen all kinds of absurd schemes that the Tories have come up with to try and kind of narrow down what was sometimes referred to as the Overton window. So, for example, um, for example, J Jacob Rees-Mogg, the, uh, the leader of the House of Commons, uh, Minister for Brexit Opportunities and also has something to do with the civil service, he tabled a plan to cut the civil service by 90,000 people back to the level it was in 2016. This is in the middle of a crisis of state capacity where people can't get their passports, they can't get their driver's license sorted out. Um, there's longer waits for uh, for benefits, all these kinds of things. And their, their solution is to exacerbate these problems by cutting numbers of people that are working on them. Now, this only makes sense if if you start seeing it through the filter of them engaging a political project that is determined to drive down the political horizons and the political imagination of people. If people think the state can't do anything, they're not likely to put demands on the state, which is just suits the Tories fine. Yeah. Um, your, your your blog, a very public sociologist... Um... Uh, all that is solid. <laughs> a very public sociologist is its URL. <laughs> okay. All, all that is solid is the name. Okay. But you can find it with either name. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, you, you're a prolific 
blogger and uh, that that is a, a resource that a lot of people go to for um for, for news on the labor party as as well as much as much as you're a, you're a scholar of the conservative party uh you 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 i don't know if you're a labor member now but you've been very mm -hmm. active in the, in the party uh, for a long time how, how do you see this um affecting the labor party one argument that gets made is that keir starmer has completely constructed his identity as a leader as as the anti boris johnson as this uh th this this guy who is the kind of respectable face of the uk establishment and and is the kind of great the great manager he, he's represented himself as boris's opposite now he doesn't have a, a boris to oppose how's that going to play well, what's been interesting is seeing him pivot slightly in recent days. He started since the beginning of this crisis that Boris Johnson has faced, which, for, again, for your American viewers, it started when uh, Boris Johnson appointed a sexual predator, sorry, an alleged sexual predator, as his um, deputy chief whip looks after discipline in the in the, of the AMPs in the House of Commons in full knowledge of the, of the allegations that had uh, were against this uh, particular individual and then Johnson lied about it and changed his story and lied about it. Since that broke, Keir Starmer's taken a different tack. Rather, it was all about Johnson and, and you know, Boris Johnson being awful, being incompetent and Tories being incompetent and awful. Now he's blamed all of the Conservative parties being institutionally corrupt. He's, he's coming out with the argument that it doesn't matter who is... Uh, elected the problem is the Conservative Party itself rather than just Boris Johnson and a few bad apples which is a big change in Johnson sorry a big change in Starmer because his criticisms historically have been quite muted he's been very reticent to go on a full-scale uh, critical barrage against the Tories but again I think one of the reasons this is is Keir Starmer's leadership is one that is driven by public opinion and rather driven by what he what is encountered in the focus groups so one of the what the focus groups have been telling him what public opinion has been telling the Labour party is that you know starmer is a bit of a wet blanket he's preferable to johnson but because he's the he's not boris johnson and not because of any kind of positive virtues that keir starmer uh, might have but also obviously these focus groups and when you look at the polls as well they're picking up on that anti-tory feeling and so now there is a big anti-tory feeling He's only he's tailing it rather than leading it. You just have to go back a couple of years, for example, during the coronavirus, again, the acute phases of the coronavirus pandemic and how he was offering so-called constructive criticisms. He was barely criticising yeah. the Tory party. He was talking about incompetence. Um, he was talking a little bit about, um, you know, procurement issues, as if anyone really cares about procurement issues. And so on. So we've seen this phase. And so perhaps we're going to see a bit more politics from Starmer because he now he realises that without Johnson being there, Labour's going to have to offer something. So maybe we'll start seeing some proper policy come through. This is The Popular Show. Uh, thanks for watching. Uh, we hope you'll join us next week on Sublation Media. Also click through uh, under the title to our own new YouTube channel. Uh, and we'd love to see you on Patreon as well in our little podcast community. I've got to thank Sean, NYCM, Aidan, Roberts, John, Steve, James Richardson, special friend of the show, Reese, EKB, George, Mac, and everybody else supporting us over there. We'd love to have you. Phil Burton Cartledge's book, Falling Down, 
the Conservative Party and the Decline of Tory Britain is published with Verso Books, uh, and we strongly recommend it. Phil, thanks so much for joining us on The Popular Show. Cheers. <laughs>